tremendous challenges and opportunities exist right now for our nation's water infrastructure. In this podcast, the industry's top leaders and innovative minds share their knowledge and insights for ensuring our water systems are operating safely and efficiently. These discussions are designed to motivate and create vibrant 21st century water systems and the innovative workforce required to lead and operate them. This is 21st Century Water with your host, Aquasite founder and CEO, Mahesh Lunani. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm with Laura Briefer, Director, Salt Lake City Public Utilities. It is the oldest water retail provider in the West, established in 1876. Laura has been appointed by the mayor to run the department, and she's deeply passionate about the impact of climate change on water resources and watersheds. Besides running the public utilities, she's also on the board of NACWA, was appointed in 2017 on Utah Governor's Executive Water Finance Board, is on the board of Water Research Foundation, and on the board of Utah Lake Water Users Associations. Quite a few boards. She's an avid runner, used to teach meditation for kids, providing positive energy for the next generation. Really look forward to talking to Laura and, and a diverse set of topics. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Mahesh. It's great to be here. A real pleasure. Look forward to it. So describe the Salt Lake City public utilities in number, like how big the service area, the population, et cetera. Sure. So Salt Lake City Public Utilities is a city department. So as you mentioned, I was appointed by the mayor and council, and we work within that municipal structure. Uh, We provide water to all of Salt Lake City, which is close to 200,000 people. We also provide water outside of Salt Lake City's boundary to another 30,000 people. So in total, we have a service area that has an estimated population of 365,000 that we provide water and then we provide sewer and stormwater services within Salt Lake City's boundaries. We have three water treatment plants, one sewer treatment plant, and a vast network of water, sewer, and stormwater conveyance and distribution systems over about a 141-square-mile area. Excellent. So you would consider this to be a mid-sized utility, right? In a beautiful city like Salt Lake City, watershed management is absolutely a critical topic. Now, your role is in a point position, as you mentioned, That's kind of a rare thing in the U.S. for the most part, right? It does happen in several places. What are the pros and cons that come with such a structure? And how are you navigating to deliver on the promise of your utilities mission? Sure. The department directors for Salt Lake City have always been appointed. So similar to the parks director for Salt Lake City or the economic development director or the fire chief, or the police chief. So I have a very great group of cohorts um, on the department level. And I'll say that being a department director for Salt Lake City is just a great, great experience. I have been appointed now. I'm on my third mayor and lots of uh, council members. The public utilities department is quite a technical Department And so the mayor and city council here in Salt Lake City, I think, greatly appreciate the need to have someone very knowledgeable and very experienced running such a complicated 
department. And so those are many of the pros. Sometimes the cons are if we're in another election, I may not have a job or I'm at will. So for any reason whatsoever, I could be let go from my position. I don't really see that happening. It's a very good relationship with our elected officials here. And it feels very important to be part of that team. Yeah, it's fascinating. You are the constant while the politicians are changing, right? Yeah. <laughs> For water, wastewater, you need to have stability. And sounds like you're bridging that gap very nicely. Well, bridging the gap, I think along those lines, though, I have other positions within my department, some that are appointed and some are not, who lead different divisions. And I also am very careful about selecting those leaders in my department, too. So in the event that I'm not here, that there is a very strong team. We have a deep, strong bench of people who bring that consistency as well. Yeah. I mean, in a time of what we call the last two years been great resignation, mm -hmm. uh, the word deep bench strength is a very rare word to use these days. <laughs> but hopefully, I mean, Salt Lake City is a, one of the most beautiful places to live in the country. So I would think the COVID has brought a lot more people to your city that admire nature and resources, and uh, maybe you have more opportunities in Salt Lake City. <laughs> I want to talk about your department. It's 150 years old, and not many water departments are that old. How is the culture of running a department that has century-old practices? Yes, uh, that's a, a really great question. And the first thing I'll say is, with our department being uh, this old, one of the things that has really carried through is this legacy of environmental protection and this legacy of public service. I would say with all of the employees that I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis, that is a culture that is very strong and very consistent here. And I really think that that goes to when this department was first established. Um, it was established to protect the environment, to protect human health, and to serve the public. And it's just, it is very strong here. If you ever come here and talk to our employees, um, it is a very strong culture of those things. Of course, you know, we've had to change and adapt as things around us have changed. So sometimes it might take a little bit longer, but I feel that we have a very collaborative culture too. And since I've become director six years ago, I feel like we've really been able to bring a lot of our different divisions together very closely and collaborate on a lot of the issues that we're seeing now that we might not have seen before, whether they're changes in regulations, whether we're incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion principles, whether we have to do things differently because the city's processes changed, you know, like implementing new software for human resource management, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, with an organization this old, I don't know if that takes more work than with younger organizations or not. We also have a culture of people staying in the job for a long time. Routinely, you know, we have people retiring that have been here working for Salt Lake City Public Utilities for 40 years. So there is this culture of just sticking with the department, sticking with the mission. And oftentimes those longtime employees that have retired still continue to reach out because they care so much. Wow. You got collaboration, you got stability of employees, and uh, sounds like a great alumni that wants to be connected back to the department that they served. Yes. Now, you have an advisory committee 
that includes uh, Mayor Mendenhall and yourself. Yeah, hopefully I got that name correctly for the mayor. You did. Yes. Tell me how this committee functions and what is the measured output out of this committee? Yes. So this committee is established by city ordinance and it is comprised of nine members from the community. So it's a true citizens committee. And the intention of this committee is to provide a citizen perspective. So it's, it's part of our public engagement. Their main role is to assist us in the development of policies, including our annual budgets and financing strategies, rate setting, and uh, we have some smaller regulatory things that they do too, such as making decisions on a land use ordinance that affects the riparian corridor of the streams that pass through the city. Each of our members are appointed for four-year terms. So again, you have that consistency. It takes a while to onboard an advisory committee member. It's a lot to learn. And so having them there for four years and and they can also be there for a second four-year term if the mayor and uh, city council agree to appoint them for a second term. So sometimes we have members there for eight years. They bring a lot of really great wisdom from their communities and serve such an important function. The mayor and I are ex officio members, so we don't vote on the committee, but we help with agenda setting and try to bring out the things that are important to these committee members to talk about. So tell me, where are you focusing your operational and capital investments in the next five years? That's pretty easy. First of all, being such an old organization, we are focusing our capital investments on the repair and replacement of aging infrastructure. In particular, the repair and replacement of our three drinking water treatment plants and the replacement of our sewer treatment plant. Great news, we just received a FEMA brick grant for one of our water treatment plants for $37 million to fund 70% of the replacement of that plant. So those are the big things on the capital investment side. With respect to operations, we are working a lot on emerging regulatory issues. We're working a lot on emerging regulatory issues, uh, including compliance with the new lead and copper requirements and on workforce. So we're focusing a lot of operational investment in our workforce with a number of different efforts. And then just generally resiliency. We are working on operational investments towards climate and drought resiliency here at Salt Lake City Public Utilities and in the state of Utah as a whole. Well, excellent. First of all, congratulations on that $37 million check that you got from FEMA. Yes. I hope these investments really spur the rebuilding of the next generation infrastructure investments. They are generational investments. So let me go to the next question. What are your three biggest strategic challenges and how are you addressing them? I would say our three biggest strategic challenges right now, first is climate change, you know, trying to address all of these different elements of climate change at the same time that we have a growing population that also puts more stress on our water resources and environment. The second challenge that we are addressing is workforce and retention, recruitment, 
and diversity, equity, and inclusion in our workforce. And then just, and, and I would say with all of these challenges, the single most important way that we are addressing them is through a lot of planning. And that's planning for infrastructure, that's planning for updated rate structures and financial strategies, uh, planning for the next generation of our workforce and how we're accommodating a workforce that has changed a lot since the pandemic started, and how we are planning for an increased population while our water supplies are being very challenged by climate and drought. Yeah. I mean, without planning, you can't just solve big challenges, isn't it? You have to put thought behind this. It's true. And it's with planning, too, it is so important that it's iterative. Where we used to do water supply and demand planning for the next 50 years, once every five to seven years, now we're doing that planning once every three years or even more frequent than that, depending on what we're observing in the environment. So I'll say another thing with respect to addressing these types of challenges, the planning is important, but maintaining a deep on the ground observational role is also important. Mm -hmm. So observing how our community reacts to these challenges, observing what's happening in the, in our natural systems, in our watersheds, you know, we really need to make sure we are constantly gathering that data and incorporating them into a very iterative planning process. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. From a, being a disciple of a management practices <laughs> myself, Yeah. this observational role that you're doing on the ground and using that as a feedback loop for your iterative planning is not often talked about. So I'm really fascinated on how you're deploying this within Salt Lake City. Let me move to the next part of uh, the question discussion I wanted to have with you, which is the role of technology. Yes. And the role of technology in water infrastructure, and what are you most excited and not excited about in this space? So the role of technology in water infrastructure just seems everywhere. It's ever-present. It includes technology that allows us to assess our infrastructure's condition, technology that helps us with being a more secure utility, workforce management, constituent management, construction management. You know, it's, it's ubiquitous in our industry. And I'm excited about being able to harness the power of all of that technology. I'll give you an example. As we are looking at repair and replacement of some really large projects, and we're talking about, you know, for a mid-sized utility, $2 billion worth of infrastructure projects over the next few years, we are really honing in on a financial strategy and on rate setting and a rate structure that is fair and equitable. And that also we understand better what our community characteristics look like. We don't want to disproportionately burden different parts of our community. And one way that technology is helping us with that is for instance, taking all of the 2020 census data and overlaying it onto our water service area, looking at, you know, income levels and proximity to 
environmental sites, you know, using that environmental justice screen through EPA, for instance. I think the thing I'm excited about is that technology can be used to uncover things that we might not otherwise have been able to see because we can put together lots of different streams of information and we can be a lot smarter about the decisions we make. I'll say the thing that sometimes makes me nervous about all the technology is being able to appropriately use it and have the bandwidth Mm -hmm. (laughs) to use it. For instance, right now we have a lot of different software where we're trying to use together billing software, permitting software, work orders, and, you know, just trying to constantly keep all of these different tools, giving them the ability to communicate with each other in an effective manner sometimes can be a little bit messy and feel a little bit fragmented. So I feel like that's a pretty small problem and that's fixable, um, especially when compared to all of the tremendous benefits that we see by using all of these technology tools. And the way in which these technology tools are evolving is exciting to me. (laughs) For instance, artificial intelligence, and that's something I'm excited to explore more too. You and I have talked about that in the past as well. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so much to look forward to in this space. But as you said, you know, there's fragmentation. And more importantly, how do you harness, from my point of view, how do you harness all this technology to solve the problem that you have? Right. At the end of the day, that's what the true benefit is for the utility. That's right. So obviously, you're from the Western part of the country, and you never get away from a discussion without talking about drought (laughs) and conservation and so on. And as I was preparing for this discussion, what was startling to me, your peak daily consumption in 2000 was 200 MGD, give and take 4 or 5 MGD. And your peak so far in 2022 was 120 MGD, almost 35, 40% drop. It's a big revenue drop as far as even though you might have a population growth of some sort, but it's a big revenue drop. First of all, how do you got to that level of water usage efficiency? And then how do you cope with a big impact on your financials for that kind of drop in in revenues? So the strategy for conservation, we started in, in the year 2000 really in earnest. And that was the development of a water conservation plan and a water shortage contingency plan. And the water conservation plan gets updated every few years, but really it's a compendium of different types of strategies that helps the public partner with us to conserve water. And these are strategies related to residential water use and commercial, institutional, and industrial water use. And they range from regulatory strategies to all kinds of strategies that are voluntary, incentive-based and a lot of public engagement. And I would say the number one key to success for water conservation and for drought response is public engagement and having built up some community trust and community rapport is very important. And this year, with respect to the drought, the drought response has been absolutely phenomenal. This year alone, we've saved two and a half billion gallons so far in the water year. And the water year for Salt Lake City is April 1st to October 1st. That's an amazing amount of savings, close to 20% savings when compared to the average of the last three years. 
And that's all our community doing primarily voluntary efforts. So that's great. There is the downside, you know, our revenue does not include property taxes. It is based on rates and revenue bonds. And when we can get them grants, like the $37 million grant I mentioned earlier, but we don't depend on that. And so really, when we see a revenue drop on an annual basis like this, the way we have to respond is to start prioritizing projects. That means that some capital outlay may not get expended. We may delay hiring new staff or we may defer a capital project to another another year. I think in the long term, because I don't think these droughts are going away anytime soon and our climate models do show that we will be facing longer and more intense droughts as things warm up, we're going to have to look at different pricing models for water. And, you know, that might be um, drought pricing when we're in a certain level of drought. It sometimes can be a little bit difficult, though, to communicate that with the public because they're doing a good job of conserving. They're doing what we're asking them to, and then we may be charging them more. (laughs) So there is a little bit of um, a conundrum in that problem. And I think a lot of Western water providers in our situation have that same uh, issue at times. But I think the most important thing is that the public does really seem to understand and embrace conservation and an ethic around water and may even be willing to pay more in order to make sure that we take care of our systems the way we need to take care of them. And we're working a lot on public education around that as well. Well, I think with great challenges come great innovations. And I'm sure we will cross that, that bridge when it comes to drought pricing. Yeah. I'm sure people, uh, residents will understand. But you published a great paper on the impact of climate change on water supplies uh, from central Wastak Mountains and how you're managing watersheds in Salt Lake City. What are the key findings of this article? Yes, this was some research that we conducted in collaboration with the Western Water Assessment and the University of Utah. Since most of our water supplies emanate from the central Wasatch Mountains, about 90% of our water supplies come from surface water in the central Wasatch. What we really wanted to do is see what happens when the temperature warms. What kind of models can we use to inform us in our future planning? And with this study and looking at the last century worth of data plus tree ring data and other metrics, and working with climate scientists as well. What we found in this research is somewhat what we expected, but we were able to quantify it a little bit more. And we found that we should be expecting earlier runoff as time goes by up to six weeks earlier, a very significant issue because that runoff needs to come at the right time to meet demand. And we don't have a lot of storage on our system. Also, less snowpack or maybe a conversion of precipitation from a snowpack-based hydrology to more of a rain-based hydrology. All of that resulting in less volume of water available to us. And we calculated that for every degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature, we could see between 8 and 15% decrease 
in water from the various watersheds. And that probably depends on their elevation. Lower elevation watersheds appear to not do as well as higher elevation watersheds, which is kind of intuitive as well. And since then, that I believe that article was in about 2013. Since then, we've done some additional climate vulnerability research. We entered into a five-year contract with the University of Utah and a multidisciplinary team there to look at various aspects of a changing climate on the hydrology and on snowpack and on temperature and demand too. Water demand increases as temperature increases potentially as well. And so we are in our fifth year of that partnership with the University of Utah, which has been great. We've had some great findings. There have been some additional published articles that have come out of that and some more that are to come. Actually, you might be interested in this too. We also looked at models that would help us manage the infrastructure Mm -hmm. better through different types of technology and innovation as we are uh, moving into this changing climate. So anyway, a lot of really exciting things that we're working on in terms of trying to understand the impact of climate change on our water supplies and you know, looking in that crystal ball. And of course, all of that informs all of our planning. <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. And it's fascinating. It sounds like it's a very macro, data-driven, mm-hmm. forecasting analysis to see what the future lies or what the future holds. That's right. Under different scenarios. One of the things that we've just found in this last round of uh, studies with the University of Utah is that our precipitation might actually be correlated with Atlantic sea temperatures. Uh And that was not something that was on our radar in the past. And the significance of that is, you know, again, sort of being able to predict based on what's happening in this macro environment and looking at that data and trying to understand what that means for this next year of water supply, the next five years of water supply, and the next 10 years. So some really just very interesting information has been uncovered again by using data and technology to try to uncover that. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating, fascinating. Now that you have this crystal ball Mm -hmm. of what the future scenarios could look like, what is your roadmap to driving your utility to be resilient against this possible unfolding scenarios that your research have found? Yes. And there are definitely some key pieces of resilience. There's probably more than this, but for me, five main elements to our roadmap. And uh, those five elements to our resiliency roadmap in a time of climate change are first, you know, I've mentioned this before, but iterative water supply and demand planning that incorporates climate, drought, and infrastructure risks. And That's going out 40 to 50 years at least. And we update that planning just every two to three years, um, which includes projections of population growth and land use changes as well. So trying to make sure we include all of the different variables into that supply and demand planning. We also talked a little bit about another really big strategy, and that's water demand and conservation management. That's an ongoing strategy where we continue to update those plans and implementation strategies for conservation programming. 
Conservation pricing is another piece that we've already built into our water rates, but now we're looking at additional pricing, uh, such as drought pricing as well. Uh, protection of our water supplies. I mean, because drought and climate make us more vulnerable to water supply disruptions, we need to be able to protect the supplies that we have. And that includes protecting at a watershed scale. As I mentioned earlier, most of our water supply is surface water that emanates from the Wasatch Mountains. That's National Forest System lands, primarily the Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest. And we work with the national forests, federal governments, state and local governments, and others to really manage this 190 square mile area of watershed to make sure that the water supplies are protected at its source, including from wildfire risk, which we're seeing more with drought. And right now we are in the process of updating a new watershed management plan that takes a deep dive into fire vulnerability and emerging water quality issues that are projected due to a warming climate. And then the last strategy that's part of this roadmap is replacement and rehabilitation of our water infrastructure. That's something we're prioritizing too. Again, if our water infrastructure fails, that adds just another risk to something that's already adding a risk to water supplies. So those are very specific parts of the roadmap, but just going to the big picture, the big long-term strategy for us is enterprise resiliency as well, making sure that our organization and our community is resilient. That means that we are always looking at our continuity of operations, our workforce, financial policies to reduce the risk of any one part of the enterprise being that weak link when we're facing such a profound challenge such as climate change or drought. And I think that we've learned that that's really important over the last two years, reacting to a lot of concurrent challenges such as drought and the pandemic. And we had a big earthquake and an inland hurricane and inflation. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I think just overall enterprise resiliency has to be the driving mantra behind your roadmap of resiliency during climate change. Well, I mean, you have an impressive catalog of uh, roadmap items to address resiliency. And I, I just feel you're doing the 21st episode, <laughs> Laura, and I haven't heard so many actions that any utility is doing together, combined, <laughs> in terms of driving resiliency. And it sounds like you're really taking this, and especially being Western part of the country, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I want to ask about ESG. That's a very hot topic at the moment. What are your strategies and tactics to make progress in this area? Yeah, you're right. It is a hot topic right now. Uh, we just recently went out for a 2022 bond issue for over $300 million for some sewer and water projects. And, you know, in our bond rating interviews with Moody's and Standard & Poor, this was a thematic topic as part of those interviews. Right now, I think our strategies and tactics for ESG build upon what we have been doing in many respects in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, in terms of looking out into our community and making sure that we're evaluating and with a goal to make sure water stays affordable and that we don't have environmental justice issues in our community surrounding water and other issues. 
and becoming part of our DNA. I think we've brought on some really great staff here, some great leadership at public utilities, at Salt Lake City Public Utilities, where this is really important to them. One of my deputy directors actually received her PhD on environmental equity project and environmental justice project. Mm -hmm. And with her leadership, we have developed an internal team comprised of line staff to prepare a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan for both internal for the workforce, but also external to the community. That has been a really interesting process for us because we're able to really rely on the firsthand knowledge of our workforce and at the same time create that idea as part of our organizational DNA because it's coming from them. Right, right. I'm very intrigued by the fact that you hired somebody who actually did a PhD on this topic. So it's a perfect platform for her to execute yes. on her research. I want to switch topic, talk about leadership. You've been a leader for some time now. What are the top three leadership lessons you have accumulated over the years? And what's your guidance to those who want to be a leader in the water infrastructure business? Well, I'll say my number one lesson is collaboration is crucially important when we're working on natural resource issues. I say that because one organization can't possibly solve a problem or take an opportunity when the ecosystem of, of where these natural resources, where water comes from and where water goes, is so multi-jurisdictional right. and so important. And so collaboration with other government partners within our organization ourselves, uh, so that we don't have silos between, or we try to mitigate silos, I guess, between different parts of the organization. Those are so important. Uh, collaboration with elected officials, collaboration with the public. I've really stepped up the function of my organization with respect to public engagement because that collaboration is, is so important. Um, that is a really key leadership lesson. The second one, we've touched on this a few times, but considering myself and my team as planners, we need to plan to anticipate and to implement. And I think that's been something that has been very successful for us. And a strategic planning too, where, you know, we start out with a water supply and demand plan, for instance, and that leads into the water conservation plan, which then leads into an affordability study, which then leads into a rate study for our, our rate structures. So it's that taking multiple different types of planning and kind of putting them together. I really think planning is so key. And then the final lesson for me is to really deeply listen to my team and to the community. I didn't come into this job as an engineer. Right. You know, my background is environmental studies and public administration. I have a team that has so much expertise in how to fix pipes and how to operate a sewer system and how to design treatment plants. And, you know, I've never been afraid to ask a question that I think might sound stupid. 
Um, and I learned, I learned a lot from my team every day. And so listening to the team and incorporating what I learned from them and having that dialogue with them has been very important. Just closing the loop on this, that sounds like uh, it's, it's very fascinating as far as I'm concerned. It's listen, it's plan, it's collaborate. Yeah. Those are three big lessons. Now, if there's one thing you want your legacy to be, what would that be? Well, first, I, I want to make sure that my legacy in this department's legacy is one of environmental protection and of inclusion. And so watershed protection and protecting Great Salt Lake, all of those things are so important. It's so connected to our community's overall health and prosperity. Um, but inclusion, I think, is just as important in so many ways. And so finding ways to understand where we can improve on that with our community and then act on that is something that I very much want to make sure that we are accomplishing. And this includes inclusion in our workforce as well. And you know, diversifying our workforce to make it stronger and more resilient too. Sounds like you want to be known as a custodian of the watershed <laughs> in your community. <laughs> yeah, a steward, a steward of my watershed and my steward. Community, and community. Exactly. And taking care of it and passing on to the next leader. Yes. Right. Laura, it's been a, a fascinating conversation being appointed by a mayor and passed a chasm with three different mayors. You're big into collaboration, planning, observational role, uh, more iterative planning, taking care of the watersheds, deep research on the impact the climate change has on the watersheds, and the massive investments you are making. It just seems uh, like there's no boring day in your job. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned quite a bit about the water leadership, and I want to thank you for being part of the show. Thank you so much. And you're right. There is no boring day. Good. <laughs> Actually, if I, could, if I could have a boring day, just one day, <laughs> yeah. gonna, that might be okay. <laughs> yeah, and you would be running on yeah, that I'll day. You would be hiking. Yeah. I'll be on the trails. <laughs> All right. It's a real pleasure talking to you, Laura. Yes, you too, Mahesh. Join host and Aquasite founder and CEO Mahesh Lunani again next month for another episode of 21st Century Water. Subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.